You guys were fantastic. So are you. You came out on Friday after working all week. You're amazing. The temptation is to sit there and go, and it's Friday and I'm tired, but no one's allowed to be tired tonight because we've got things to do. So everybody do this. Everybody sit up straight. I want you to smile with your eyes. Everybody open your eyes really wide. Smile with your eyes. It's really good. It's a good exercise to do. I, I have a point to do this. All right, so everybody smile with your eyes. All right, you're not doing it, sir. Yes, yes. All right, everybody smile with your eyes. All right, now try to feel sad. You can't. So if you want the cure for depression, that's all it is. Just, make, just lift your eyebrows and affect the world around you. It's, it's, it's awesome to, to be back with you. I, I love this place. If, if y'all quit having me come preach, I'll still come every now and then and just refresh my soul. I find it amazing. I find the environment here great. Um, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do. I travel the world. We were in 13 nations last year, so things are growing and going well. Um, um, I've been, had the privilege of being mentored by a pastor with his rabbi training. And so all my stuff sort of comes to that bent. Also, have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So um, if you're messed up in your head, I could try to give that a go. Um, uh, on your way out, there'll be a big table there. Um, all of our resources are now available in three formats, um, DVD, CD, and USB, okay? If you don't know what a USB is, just get the CD, all right? Or you could find an 11-year-old, and they'll show you how to use it. It'll be all right, all right? You could pick up those things over there, and there's obviously a profit margin built into it. Um, all of the profit from that is what allows us to do our main mission in the world, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. And so um, we have uh, three orphanages in China, one in Escort, South Africa, one in Marmalodi, South Africa, and we have a ministry in Cape Town that gets prostitutes, drug addicts, and gang members off the street, educated in, in a high school equivalency way. Um, we get them job training so we can break the cycle of poverty in Cape Town. Um, that's what we're trying to do. So you can, all I'm asking you to do is um, on your way out before you go eat supper, you come by our table, let me put something in your hands that will change the way you look at God forever. And in so doing, you put something in our hands, helps us be people that can't eat. I have two brand new ones, maybe three brand new ones since last time I was here. But, but, but the, uh, the, the really popular one is the one called Flames of Heaven. It's a brand new one I've just done. It was, um, it's really gutsy, um, and it's really cutting edge, and it tackles issues that um, we have stopped making sense with, like heaven and hell and those sorts of things. Um, when we released it uh, the first week, 416 uh, copies went off the shelf, and um, I think probably 1,000 copies have went off since then, and so um, it's, it's very, very sort of cutting edge stuff. You need to pick that up. Also, uh, I have a brand new series called Winning at Life which is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. That's brand new since last time I've been here. So you guys could check those things out and know um, that it's all going to something very, very good. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Let's look at this. As always, I, I, I have a, a congruent and uh, consistent flow of thought for the whole weekend. So what I'm doing tonight will be continued tomorrow. I just can't do it all in one night, okay? So I want us to, to, to follow along with this and... Uh, Oh, yes, there we go. Yes, you guys are fantastic, these guys. In the spur of a moment, in the flash of light, Sajan acts. Oh, no. What have I done? There's only one button on here. Oh. All right, so this is the end of the circle. Now, this is a sermon, all right? So primarily, um, yes, all right, hang on. Which one? Oh, I hit the wrong button. Oh, here we go. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is preaching a sermon. I started to get fascinated with Jesus as a sermon preacher because I, I became friends with some atheists, agnostics really. But what I found once I became their friend is that they hadn't rejected Jesus at all. They had just rejected the image of Jesus that was presented to them. And there's a big difference, by the way. And so as I got talking to them about this, the way I had to, to, to approach Jesus with them is Jesus as a teacher of a way to live because they really weren't buying the whole uh, uh, he was born of a virgin thing. And they really weren't buying the whole he's the son of God thing. That didn't make much sense to them. And the reason it didn't make much sense is partly because when they were kids, the way it was presented was horrible. And so they sort of learned away from that. But they were totally willing to look at someone's philosophy of living and what they did, when, when, what, what I did when I sat down with them is they got so fascinated with Jesus' way of living that they now have both submitted their lives to living the way Jesus lived. And they, they came to me and they said, um, if Jesus is as nice as you make him seem, then he won't mind us living the way he wants us to live while we work out the whole God thing. And I said, no, he won't. That'd be great. That'd be great. So it, it's very important to look at Jesus as, as a, look at the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon. It's very inappropriate to pick one thing out of a sermon and make it say something that the sermon isn't saying. It's so, so that's very inappropriate. Like if I, um, if, 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 if I, if you, sir, do you have any children, sir? Yes, you do. Okay. Um, let's say in his life, um, he had to give um, one of his children, 12 spankings, okay? Just in their whole life, 12 spankings, and they needed it, right? And so he had to do that. And let's say I was there for all 12 times, and I took a video of it, right? And, and then someone later said, hey, do you know this guy? I said, yes, I know this guy. Well, what kind of dad is he? And I said, you know, I don't know what kind of dad he is, but I have video. Let's check the video. And so I, I plugged the video camera in, and on this video camera is all 12 spankings that he gave his kid. Is that fair to him as a father, no, no, because it doesn't take into account the reason why, the context. It doesn't take into account what he was trying to prune off his kid's life so they don't ruin their life at 30. It doesn't take into account he's up at 5 a.m. every day blessing his children. It doesn't take into account that his children love him to this day. It doesn't t- take into account all of these things. And so it's totally inappropriate. When, when people do that with God all the time, they take these one little scriptures out and they make it everything. Like, like It is inappropriate to preach Hosea chapter 1 without Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 1 says, I will break your back. You will regret the day you were ever born. You are never going to be my people. I will never forgive you. You will surely be cast off from my presence. Sounds horrible. That's Hosea chapter 1. But Hosea chapter 3 says this, to those of you I said you're not my people, you're my people. (laughs) To those of you I said I'd break your back, I would never hurt you. To those of you I said I would never forgive, I'll forgive you. To those of you I said I'll hold your stuff against you forever, I will never hold your stuff against you forever, for I'm a God and not a man. By Hosea chapter 11, he says this, Oh, how could I ever have turned my back on you, O Israel, for you are my people. You cannot preach Hosea chapter 1 without reading to the end and at least giving that credence. And so this is one of those scriptures that gets taken by itself and it becomes horrible. This, This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what it says. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. Now, if you grow up in white people church, you instantly, when you read this, get images of what two things? Heaven and hell. 
And the problem with that is, is that there's no mention of heaven anywhere in this sermon, nor is there a mention anywhere close to this of anything resembling hell. To make this statement about heaven and hell, you have to remove the statement entirely from the context of the sermon he was preaching. You can't do that. And if you do that, Christianity's message gets entirely uncompelling. All of a sudden, our message becomes, unfortunately, most of the world is doomed. Oh, join us. That is such a positive, uplifting, hope-giving, love-inducing message. Most people are doomed, unfortunately. No, of course not. This is a part of a sermon. Now, to understand the sermon, you have to understand the euphemisms and the figures of speech within the culture. First, light, life, and increase. Light, life, and increase. These are three synonymous words that are used in Hebrew culture that talks about anything that brings your life to wholeness, abundance, and shalom. Anything that brings your life, it is synonymous to a realm of living that means you're choosing God's ways. Life, light, and increase. The second group of words is this, death, darkness, decrease. Death, darkness, decrease is a realm of life that brings you away from wholeness and towards disrepair, okay? Away from wholeness and towards disrepair. Death, darkness, decrease. In the Torah, you are given choices all the time. It says, I give you this day two choices. Choose life instead of death. Blessings instead of curses. Increase instead of decrease. It wasn't talking about literally dying. It's talking about choose to live in God's ways so that you enter into the realm of life. Choose away from death and towards life. Choose away from destruction and towards wholeness. Jesus is simply making an observation about life, and he's simply saying most people don't have what it takes to stay on the high road. Most people don't have what it takes, and that's true of every area. How many people, percentage-wise, are winning financially? Very, very few. Very, very few. Matter of fact, um, one recent survey um, in U.S. News and World Report said that, that for every dollar we make, we're spending a dollar and two cents, which that means this, normal is broke. Most people aren't winning financially. What percentage of marriages are mutually enriching, mutually edifying, mutually uplifting? What, sort of, how, what percentage of marriages are actually thriving? Very little. Very little. If your marriage is thriving, you are awesome. That is great. You are in a blessed minority. 50% of marriages end in divorce. I know another 25 are just holding on. You're talking about a one in five proposition. Jesus is essentially stating the obvious. He's saying, this life I'm talking about, most people do not have what it takes. Most people, do. most people don't have what it takes to bless their enemies. Most people don't have what it takes to, to de-escalate criticism and strife. Most people don't have what it takes to be a peacemaker. Most people don't have what it takes to always forgive. Most people don't have what it takes to turn the other cheek. Most people don't have what it takes to do what I'm talking about doing. Most people. This is a sermon. What I find fascinating about this sermon is that there's thousands of people in attendance, and he does not end it with an altar call. I find that fascinating. He does not end this sermon this way. He doesn't end it by saying, now here's what we're going to do at the end of this sermon. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward and accept me in your heart as your Lord and Savior. And we've got this specific prayer that hasn't been made up yet. And if you just pray it, you'll have your ticket punched and one day you'll get to go somewhere else. That's not how he ends the sermon. As a matter of fact, he doesn't give an altar call at all. What's wrong with Jesus? Does he not care about people's souls? 
He's got thousands of people in front of him, and he doesn't do that? What's wrong with him? Matter of fact, he ends the sermon on a question. He simply says this, if you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, you'll find that it's going to solidify your life. And when you, no matter what storms in life you face, you're going to find that you're going to land on your feet. But if you hear these words of mine and do not put them into practice, you're going to find that it's going to make your life very shaky, like a sand foundation. And no matter what, no matter what storms you face in life, you're going to tend to land on your face. Essentially, he's saying the people who listen and do, they face the same obstacles as people who listen and don't do. But the people who listen and do tend to land on their feet, and people who listen and don't do tend to land on their face. He ends the sermon with a choice, feet or face, rock or sand. He ends it with a lifestyle choice. Now, he, here is the basic flow of thought, all right? So every sermon has a basic flow of thought. So essentially, this is Jesus's outline, okay? So this is this scripture in context. Uh, first thing he says in this flow of thought is, don't get what you want from others by judging them. Judge not lest you be judged. In other words, don't try to, don't try to get what you need from others by judging them. A good wife would do this. Don't you love it when your husband says that to you? Because now that you feel like total crap, you'll just do what he wants and love him. Well, of course not. That doesn't really work, right? He says, don't get what you need by judging then he says, don't get what you need by manipulation. Once people figure out you're manipulating them, they'll turn on you and eat you alive. Don't do that. Don't do that. Then he says, simply ask, seek, and knock. Be clear, right? So the first part of his sermon is, he says, don't get what you need by judging. This is directly tied to how you treat other people. Second thing he says is, don't get what you need from others by manipulation. This is directly tied to how you treat other people. Third thing he says is, when you need something from someone, just simply ask, seek, and knock. In other words, be clear. Just if you need help, just ask. It's a big difference between saying, sweetie, I really need the help with the dishes. Would you mind helping me? And I wish someone would help me around here. Those are two different things. One is manipulation. One is clearly ask, seeking, and knocking. All right? Then he says, be aware of how your God concept affects how you treat others. Essentially, he says, when, when you ask your heavenly father for a piece of bread, does he give you a rock? No, God doesn't play those games. Essentially, the point he's making is, is that it's very important that we become aware of how our God concept affects other people, how it affects how we treat other people. Jesus' disciples dealt with this. There's this uh, story in Luke chapter 9 where, where uh, Jesus sends his disciples to the next city to prepare the way while he finished up in one city. And then as he was going there, they, they meet him on the way out. And he says, what happened? They said, well, unfortunately, these people won't accept you. Would you like us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them now? And it says that Jesus rebuked them for their heart attitude. In other words, it would be a horrible thing if followers of Jesus ever thought Jesus' goal was to destroy people who don't accept him. The Jesus I read about forgives his enemies. He turns the other cheeks. He even, pray, he even prays and blesses and forgives people who nailed him to a cross and beat him half to death on the way there. That's the kind of Jesus I serve. But if I believe that Jesus wants to destroy people, then that's how I'll come across. It will affect how I talk to other people. He says, be aware of this. Be, be, be aware. If, if God tortures people, then it, you're going to think it's okay for you to torture people. And, and by the way, in the, in the 1860s, the church condoned the beatings of black people because they were less than human um, in America. I'm sure that didn't happen here. I'm sure there's no racism in New Zealand, right? No, that doesn't happen here. Um, if God's a racist, then it's okay for you to be a racist. If God does things, it's okay. So he says, he says, don't get what you want by judging. 
Don't get what you want by manipulation. That's how you treat others. Simply ask, seek, and knock how you treat others. Be aware of how your God concept affects how you treat others, which is how you treat others. And then he says, broad is the road and narrow is the way that leads to, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life. Does it stand to reason it might be talking about how you treat others? Considering everything before it is talking about how you treat others. But it keeps going. It gets better. Then he says, don't follow teachers whose teachings destroy your life. If it isn't working, dump it. Essentially, he says, if, if what someone's teaching you is leading your life to a bad place, um, dump it. If it isn't working, uh, don't keep doing it. It's, it's, it's Jesus being uh, a first century Middle Eastern hippie Dr. Phil, essentially. Right? Then he says, um, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I just don't know you. And so Jesus then indicates that at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who think they're in, but they're actually out. And then he gets really scary because he goes on to describe Pentecostal leaders. He says, these are people who've called me Lord, they've cast out devils, they perform miracles, and they prophesied. These are the people who are in trouble. Eesh. Sounds like me. Sounds like you. Sounds like Pentecostal leaders. I mean, honestly, Baptists from Cleveland, they're safe, right? right? He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I say, I just don't know you. The problem is, is that there's only one scripture in the whole Bible that defines what it means to know God. That is Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen. It says, he took care of the poor and the afflicted, so it will go well for him. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? So once again, knowing God was directly tied to how you treated other people. In the New Testament, it's the same. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. So knowing God in the New Testament was directly tied to how you treated other people. Then he just says this, don't just hear these things, they're obvious, do them. And he tells this incredible story about a guy that builds his house on the rock, and no matter what comes against them, the house stands. And then he tells a story about a guy who builds his house on sand. And no matter what comes against them, the house falls down. And he says, this is what your life will be like if you hear these words of mine and then don't do them. But if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, it's going to solidify your life. So, so, so let's, let's, let's go back through this. Check this out. All right, so here's the flow of thought. Don't get what you want by judging. That's how you treat other people. Don't get what you want by manipulation. How you treat others. Don't uh, simply ask, seek, and knock how you treat others. Be aware of how your God concept affects how you treat others. It's how you treat others. Broad roads and narrow ways, talking about how you treat others. Oh, wrong way. Um, don't follow teachers whose teachings destroy your life, directly tied to how you treat others. Uh, please be in a pursuit of God, totally tied to how you treat others. And then don't just hear these things, they're obvious, do them. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as the Lord for Christ's sake has forgiven you. How obvious is that advice? Pretty obvious. How much better would your life be if you did that all the time? A lot. How many of you wish people treated you like that all the time? Everybody. How many people actually do that? Very few. Even though it's obvious, broad is the road. There's lots of things in life, but everybody seems to be going right, and you just know you need to go left. Essentially, Jesus' teachings is simply this. If everyone is doing something, it's a good sign you should be doing something else. Most people aren't on the right road. Now, what I want to do now is I want to talk about something very important to becoming a Christ follower. 
I want to talk about a, a narrow road thing. Now, before we get into this, I want, to talk, I want to be very clear. Most people cannot do this. You have to be pretty special to put this into practice. Most people will find themselves on the broad road with this. And I'm okay with that because it was true in Jesus' day. It'll be true now. It'll be true 3,000 years from now. Most people cannot do what I'm fixing to tell you to do. However, that doesn't mean it's not the best thing for your life. And it doesn't mean that the people who are doing it aren't experiencing something that people who aren't doing it cannot imagine. This is something Jesus speaks about that he is urging his followers to do. Let, let, me, let, me, put something, let me put part of what Jesus is saying into context. Do you reckon you're going to enjoy heaven? Really? I challenge you to go back and reread every single thing Jesus ever said about heaven and ask yourself the question, would you like it if you went there tomorrow? For instance, Jesus said in heaven, all the secret conversations of your heart will be revealed for all to see. <laughs> you want to go there? So right now, if you're thinking, this guy's so boring, I can't wait to go home and watch NCIS. If we were in heaven, there'd be a billboard up where everybody could see it. If you're a racist and you die and you go to heaven and you wake up at a table with every tribe, tongue, and race, are you in heaven or hell? When Jesus talked about heaven, he talked about it confrontationally. Essentially, Jesus' invitation was not, here's how to go somewhere else. Jesus' invitation is, here's what heaven looks like. And the good news is that heaven is going to come to earth one day. And that is a blessed hope that we all look forward to because death does not win. And so heaven's going to come to earth one day. Here's what heaven looks like. I'm urging you to go ahead and align your life with it now. So that when you do walk into heaven one day, you don't get whiplash. That'd be awesome. The goal isn't to go to heaven one day. The goal is if you walked into heaven tomorrow, what parts of your life would survive and what parts of your life will be burned up? We'll get to that later. All right. But this is one of these broad roads and narrow ways things. This is one of these areas where Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven and it is so challenging. Here's what he says. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. We're already on a narrow road, aren't we? How many people can get hurt and physically have the courage and the faith and the discipline to just keep it between two people? Very few. Jesus said, this is the best life. Just between the two of you. And if they listen, then you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And I love this. He's like, if someone hurts you, deal with it between the two of you. And if you can't come to agreement, bring two or three other people. Because sometimes when people's feelings get involved, your objectivity goes away. And sometimes it helps to bring people in who aren't emotionally connected to the situation. Sometimes those people can bring great wisdom to it. It's good to do that, right? He keeps going. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, which leads me to this question. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He was their friend. 
That was the Pharisee's biggest problem with him is that he loved tax collectors and sinners. So essentially he says, if someone hurts you, try to keep it between the two of you. If they won't listen to you one-on-one, then go get two or three at most and sort of keep it within a small group of people. But if that doesn't work, then take it to the church, which by the way, in those days, big churches like this didn't exist because mostly because of, of resources and transportation issues. Uh, churches in those days were roughly 20 people and they were meeting under, uh, under one roof. And um, I'm glad we progressed to this. So, I mean, this is a good thing. But back then, uh, taking it to the church does not mean announcing it to the, from the stage. Taking it to the church meant uh, take it to the people you're journeying the closest with. Uh, which, by the way, um, this has to come out of relationship. If you don't know the person you're talking about's children's names, you have no right to speak it to their life. Okay? So, so he says, essentially, take it to your small group, and if they won't listen to them, then treat them like tax collectors and sinners. Essentially, he's saying this, if someone hurts you, uh, keep it one-on-one if possible. If not, take it to two or three, um, and if that doesn't work, take it to your small group of close-knit friends who are journeying um, with God together, and if that doesn't work, then love them to pieces. <laughs> treat them like tax collectors and sinners. See, if, if you read, treat them like tax collectors and sinners, and your instant thought is, cast them out to hell with you. I hope you like fire. If, if, that is your, if that is what you think when you read this, that tells me a lot about your God concept. It tells you that deep in your heart, you think God wants to destroy people. When Jesus, Jesus was a friend to tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is saying, hey, if this doesn't work, then love them. He keeps going. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, uh, before time, God's kingdom rules. After time, God's kingdom rules. In between, in between the two trees, uh, the beginning of time centered around a tree. The end of time centers around a tree. In the beginning of time, everything is submitted to God. At the end of time, everything is submitted to God. In the middle, God gives men their own kingdom. And the problem is, is he gave you a kingdom and me a kingdom and you a kingdom and you a kingdom. And hopefully our kingdoms don't butt up against one another. So for the time being, he's essentially saying, you're in charge of what your environment is like. If, 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 if you don't handle this properly, you're going to find your environment getting very chaotic. And it's not my fault and it's not Satan's fault. It's your fault. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, ask for it. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three, gather in my name. There I am in the midst of them. Now, uh, a couple of really basic understandings. All right, first, uh, to understand this, you have to understand the Hebrew concept of echad. Echad. Now, I'm not going to go into this too much because I've taught it here before, but echad is essentially the teaching that God is unity in diversity. It's a special word that means unity and diversity. It's from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, echad. That God is lots, but he's also one. Um, a later writer was trying to figure out uh, where Christ was and where Christ isn't. And finally, he threw his hands up in the air and he says, for I have concluded that Christ is all and is in all things. And so, and so sometimes, sometimes we make God very narrow, whereas the writer of the Bible, the writers of the Bible make, the, make Jesus very, very big. And so Ehad is essentially unity and diversity, that everything out of God is, is one, but it's also diverse. Creation is out of God, therefore it's diverse, yet yet it's one. And every small part affects the whole. If ocean temperatures heat up nine degrees, what would happen? There'd be a global meteorological disaster, okay? The ocean temperatures have to cooperate with the rest 
of the earth. If all of a sudden the earth decided to give up 4% of its oxygen, what would happen? You would get lightheaded and start to faint, all right? So, and, and then eventually you would lose your ability to maintain life on this planet. Every small bit of this planet has to participate with the rest of creation. That is hod. You are made in the image of God, therefore you are a hod. Let me prove it to you. Anybody here ever had kidney stones, right? You had kidney, somebody had kidney stones, right? Did you go to work that day? No, no, why? It's only, it's only one part of your body that's this big. Are you a wimp? What's wrong with you? No, it's just this little bit. Everything else is fine, but your kidney goes sour and you stay out of work. Everybody understands that. Why? Because if one small part of the body goes, it affects everything else. Echad. This is unity within diversity. Hebrew people believe that unity or echad was the force holding the universe together. The Bible says it this way, that God is holding the universe together. So if God is a hod and God is holding the universe together, then what force is holding the universe together? A hod. So you, the, the principle is you can't come against the very force that holds the universe together. Anything you're doing that sets itself in opposition to a hod is setting you in opposition to the very thing that holds the universe together. And you can't do that. That's the problem with adultery. The problem with adultery is not sex, for goodness sake. Two consenting adults coming together in a pleasurable way. Honestly, is that really the problem with adultery? No. The problem with adultery is you're setting yourself in opposition to someone else's unity. And when you set yourself in opposition to someone else's unity, then you're setting yourself in opposition to the very force that holds the universe together. And if you set yourself in opposition to the force that holds the universe together, does it stand to reason that you yourself will be torn apart? That is ahad. The other thing is light and dark, which we already talked about. Light is anything that brings you to wholeness and away from disrepair. Darkness is anything that brings you towards disrepair and away from wholeness. Now, let's look into this further. John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. He says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Echad. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I love that. Father, as you are in me and I am in you, let them be in us so that they can have great church services. No. So that they can have powerful meetings. No. So that they can have great Bible studies. No. He says, as, I, as you are in me and I am in you, let them be in us so that the world might believe. Essentially, for followers of Jesus, our focus has to always be outward. Then there's another problem with this. If we are a hod and all of us are living in this unity, then if one person goes awry, it creates a problem with our community, doesn't it? Just like in your body. If one part of your body goes awry, it's a real problem. Paul uses the body as an example in Corinthians. He says, we are all like one body. And if one part suffers, the whole part suffers. And if one part wins, the whole part wins. And so we have to look at ourselves that way. So here's the problem with that. When... When someone is acting in such a way that destroys their life, and someone says, I need to talk to you about this, you're destroying your life. If your response is, it is none of your business, it's just between me and God, it's my problem, are you right? No. 
No, it's almost never between you and God. If it's just between you and God, do whatever you'd like. God can handle you. It is never between you and God. It's between you and God and your wife and your children and your co-workers and your family and your, and your fellow church members and your, and, your, and your fellow believers in Jesus Christ and the people close to you. It's between you and God and everyone who touches you that the ripples of it go further and further and further. If darkness is encompassing you, then it's affecting the entire environment of which you're in. Now, if it affects you, then it affects them. Now, let's talk through this because these are some big concepts. So let's talk through it and break it down to something that's more workable, okay? Let, let's, let's, let's look at it this way, okay? The life Jesus speaks of in terms of establishing the kingdom here assumes a couple of things. One, that people are willing to engage the darkness of others without judgment or perpetuity. That we are willing to engage the darkness of others without judgment or perpetuity. That you are so connected with fellow followers of Jesus that you can openly talk about your faults and vice versa. That there is a humility and heart to restore everyone, never judgment and hypocrisy, but love. For we are commanded to treat people as tax collectors and sinners, even in the worst case scenarios, which means to love them and be their friend. What if we did this tomorrow? What if our life, and once again, these are narrow road stuff, that people are willing to flood light into darkness with the purpose of restoration. If, if that Jesus assumes a community that's so open that when we see each other operating in darkness, that there can be an open dialogue between two people, and it's not for judgment, and it's not for elitism, and it's not for powering up, and it's surely not for putting on Facebook or Twitter. Jesus assumes a community that can talk through darkness with the sole purpose of bringing light to it. Now, this requires two things. One, it requires someone willing to engage someone else's darkness with full commitment to help them fix the problem. One. Two, it requires a person who is open and teachable. And three, it requires that both of them don't gossip and slander the other behind the other person's back. Have you ever shared a secret with someone and then heard it again? How do you feel when that happens? I shared a deep personal um, pain once with someone I thought was my good friend. And then three months later, I was asked about how I was going from someone I had not told the problem to. And so I asked her, where did you hear this from? And she said, oh, well, they told me. I figured they figured that was okay. And the truth is, is I probably would have told this other person myself. But the fact that they took that liberty violated me. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This life Jesus is talking about requires this. In order to establish the kingdom in your heart right now, this requires you to be open to being teached, to be teached, to be open to being taught, corrected, disciplined, to, to be open to the feedback of others, to be open to someone else's point of view. You have to be open to that. And it also requires other people 
to be willing to engage the darkness with full commitment to make it right. You're not engaging darkness just for darkness sake. You're engaging darkness to bring light to every single situation. It requires those two things with both people with the hard attitude that we're not going to gossip. We're not going to perpetuate this. We are here to bring light into darkness. Let, let me ask you a few questions around this, okay? Just for thought. What if we created an environment that was less focused on fixing everyone and more focused on everything being in the light? What would happen to sin and the power of it? Grace is far more harmful to sin than judgment because grace lets it all come into the light and then it loses its power. Judgment punishes sin and creates an environment of hiding and strongholds because you have to protect yourself. Grace says we are all in this struggle together. Let's all put our crap on the table right here in the light. And to whatever level we are allowed to be genuine and expose our darkness, the darkness loses the power because it's exposed in the light. What would happen then? What, let, 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 let me say it another way. What would happen if we created an environment where we could confess what we wanted to do before we actually did it? instead of waiting till we did it to confess our sins. What if we did that? What if we were allowed to mutually engage each other's, in each other's darkness to that level? This is where AA is my hero. I find AA so Christ-like in this one area. They create an environment where people can confess the sins they want to commit even before they commit it so that the sin loses its power. People who have a friendship circle like that tend to win. They just tend to win. Let, let, let me read this scripture to you. Check this out. This is Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And to search out a matter is the glory of kings. Two thoughts there. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. When someone hurts you, you are giving glory to God if you keep it to yourself. That is powerful. That is powerful. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Let, let, let's look at this even further. So, um, one, the life Jesus assumes, assumes this, that people are willing to engage the darkness of others without judgment or perpetuity. Two, that people are willing to flood light into darkness with the purpose of restoration, not any other reason. Three, that you investigate the matter. If you go back and look at the scripture, it says, if your brother sins if they sin. Circle it a thousand times, a hundred times in your Bible. Circle it. If they sin. It is very important that kingdom people make commitment to search out the matter. In other words, don't go on rumor or story or on any version of the truth. Go talk to the only person who could give you the straight story. That people that follow Jesus Listen, and that people that follow Jesus are becoming the type of people that listen when people kindly talk privately about their faults. Jesus' followers actually crave this environment and are willing to commit with the other person to help them solve it and bring light to that situation with no of their stuff being spread all over the place. Gossip is just terrible. How about this? That people are willing to listen and they crave engaging suffering and darkness in order to make it right. So this requires us to ask a few questions about ourselves. One, have you ever made poor assumptions about someone? And two, has your judgment ever changed when you got more information? 
I mean, we do this a lot. There's a lot of space in the head. As a matter of fact, um, um, subatomic, you know, quantum physics people say that you're actually 96% empty space. So if someone ever calls you an airhead, it's actually true. There's a lot of empty space in the head, a lot of room for imagination. Has your imagination ever run wild? Like if, you're the, if, if your daughter's 15 years old and you tell her to be home by midnight and it's 2.15 and she hasn't called, does your imagination go to the best case scenario or the worst? And it, it gets even sillier. Like, like how active is our imagination? They haven't returned my call. It's been eight minutes. Is there something up? They're late. They haven't returned this email. Are they ignoring me? Maybe they didn't get it. We always assume the worst. They said something mean, and it has to be about me. It can't be the stress from the medical test their daughter is waiting to receive. It has to be that they're mean to me. It's imagination, assumptions. Has, have you ever made a poor assumption about someone, and then your judgment changed when you got more information? Emerson Egricks tells this incredible story. Of, of, a, a, of a scenario he was in where he was on a bus. And, and this bus was full. And traveling by bus is not very good anyway. And so this bus was full. It was a long bus ride. And this, uh, this, this single dad, or I don't, he didn't know if he was a single dad. He was just a dad by himself with three kids. They got on the bus. And these kids were awful, hey, like awful. Like the spawn of Beelzebub, awful. They're running up and down and making noises, and it was just horrible. Which, by the way, let me make an observation. If no one else will tell you this, I will tell you this because I love you. No one thinks your children are as cute as you do, right? Can I get an amen on that, right? Nothing worse than a parent sitting there letting their kids run roughshod over everything, acting like nothing's going on, the kids disturbing every single thing in the environment. No one thinks your kid is as cute as you do. So you're on this bus. Three kids running roughshod over everything, screaming, yelling, beep, 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 beep. And everybody's looking at the dad, like, when is he going to do something? And the dad's just sitting there sort of glaring into nothing. Kids throwing food, yelling out, Going nuts, it's 2 a.m., people trying to sleep. Everyone's looking at the dad. Now, what assumption was the whole bus making about the dad? He's a horrible dad. He lets his kid run roughshod. So finally, someone said to the dad, Excuse me, sir, can you get your children under control, please? And the whole bus said, Amen. <laughs> the dad snapped out of it, and he said, Oh, oh, listen, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Um, their mom just died, and we just came from her funeral, and I'm a bit lost at the moment, and I'm sure they are too, and I know they're being annoying, and I'm, I'm going to control them, so please forgive me. Now, how many of you, your judgment just changed just like that, right? More information, our judgment changes. Jesus is inviting us to a narrow road decision that says, I will choose to investigate the matter instead of assuming the worst all the time. Because when we assume the worst, we almost never keep it to ourselves. And before we know it, the problem is rough shot over the entire environment. Let's, let's look at it um, another way. 
Jesus says to them, don't let assumptions and fragments sit. They become something not even close to the truth. Let's say it this way. I try to say things a lot of different ways um, so so that we get it. Let's say it this way. That there's a big difference between what were they thinking and, man, what were they thinking? I'm actually curious to sit down and understand. You know what? I know you're going to find this surprising. I spoke in 13 nations last year. Two of the nations I required a translator. I did 481-hour preaches in 12 months last year. It was unbelievable. Now, because I did 481-hour preaches in 13 different cultures, um, there were occasions where people misunderstood me. And I know that's very surprising because I'm so crystal clear in everything I say. And here's what I appreciated the most. In three different situations last year, pastors loved me enough to sit down with me and say, Shane, we know your heart. We know you love God. Um, But this is what some people thought you said. Can, Can you help me understand what you meant by that? So instead of making assumptions on fragments of information, they loved me enough to sit down over coffee and have a conversation to fully investigate the matter. And when guys love me enough to do that, I feel comfortable enough with them to openly share what they were looking for. I didn't feel like I needed to protect myself. I didn't feel like any of that. Why? Because they were engaging in behavior that Jesus is talking about. You do not prepare rumors and fragments of information. You be mature enough to fully investigate the matter. Find out what they were thinking. Find out what they were thinking. let's, Let's look at it this way. The key in Matthew 18 is this, if they listen. Now, now this is a Jewish euphemism. The idea is to get it. It's not just to hear it, it's to get it. Jesus brings it back later at the end of the sermon. He says, if you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, it's going to solidify your life. Jesus' invitation to us is this. If you will make a commitment to conceal the matter as well as investigate the matter, For the purpose of restoration and redemption, you will find that you will perpetuate far less darkness. Therefore, darkness will far less be perpetuated on you. And you will find abundance and wholeness and shalom coming to every part of your life. But it's a narrow road thing. Jesus says the best possibility of them, this is so obvious. The best possibility of them hearing you is that you are talking to them. If your goal is to be heard... The best possibility of being heard is actually that you're talking to the only people who can fix the problem, not to everybody else. The opposite of this is gossip. Gossip is when you fail to engage darkness with a commitment to fix it. You engage darkness with the purpose intended or not to perpetuate it. That's gossip. It's the obvious. So this, this life Jesus talks about requires two things. One, it requires someone willing to engage darkness. And two, it requires someone being willing to be taught, to be teachable, to be disciplined, to allow correction to come on us. Now, let me, look, let, me let you look at some scriptures around this because this is very important. Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Whoever hates correction is stupid. Let's look at another one. The way of fools seems right to them, 
The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. I love that scripture. The way of fools seem right to them. Of course it does. People say, well, you always think you're right. When have you actually done something you thought was wrong before you did it? We all learn from experience. The way of someone always seems right to you unless you're a psychopath. Like, of course it does. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. If you're smart, you ought to seek out someone who already has what you want and then listen to every single thing they say. If you're wise, this is a narrow road thing. Most people won't do this. You'll listen to this, and then you'll go home and won't think nothing else about it. And that's okay, because that's broad road stuff. Narrow, most people won't. Some people will. The, the people who seek out people who have what they want and then listen to everything they say, they tend to win at life. Foolish, foolish people think that what they're doing is right, but wise people listen to advice. How about this one? Check this one out. Where there is strife, there is pride. In other words, if there's tension in your environment, someone is putting themselves bigger than they should. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. How about this one? Proverbs 15.10. Stern discipline awaits anyone who leaves the path. The one who hates correction will die. Obviously a euphemism, not talking about physical death. It's obviously talking about entering into the realm of death, disrepair, darkness, decrease. Not everyone who hates correction drops dead of a heart attack immediately. It's, it's, if you hate correction, you're on a path that's going to lead you down the road to destruction. How about this one? Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. It's an interesting take that Solomon has there. Those who disregard discipline, who do they despise? Do they despise the person giving the discipline? No, they despise themselves. Essentially, Solomon's wisdom is if someone's trying to speak correction and truth into your life and you despise it, you think you despise them, but in actuality, you despise yourself. In actuality, you're just, you're just hating yourself. It's interesting. Uh, those who disregard discipline despise. The root word in the original language for despise means to profane. To profane means to treat something that is sacred as if it's common. Like to profane the Bible. If you walked out there tonight and someone had a Bible and set it on fire, how would you feel? You'd feel sick, right? Why? Is there something special about a leather-bound book with pages in the middle? No, it's because of what that book represents. That book is sacred and you're treating it as common. And so when we do that, that's called profanity. Essentially, what Solomon is saying is this. If you hate correction and discipline, the sacred part of you, you're treating it as if it's common. That God has something so much bigger for you, but what God has for you requires you to be open to feedback. It requires you to be open to other people's corrections and ideas and truths. It requires you to be willing to listen to someone else's point of view about you. And if you despise that, you're only hating yourself. You're only treating yourself, who is a sacred person with a God idea around their life, you're only treating that as if it's common. Oh, by the way, um, we're talking. if you're mean, um, you could take what I'm saying here and use that as a license to beat people up because you're the garter of truth or something. Listen, this has to be out of relationship. If you can't tell me their children's names, you have no right to speak it to their life. This has to be out of relationship. It's not meant for anybody to be powering up on someone else. 
How about, let's talk through some of these things. Let's talk through some of these things. Um, All of us have blind spots. A blind spot, by definition, means you cannot see it without someone else's help. So even if you went to a counselor, the counselor wouldn't be able to help you with it because if you don't report it properly, the counselor doesn't know what to do. It's a blind spot. There are things in all of our lives that the only way we can get over them is being open to the feedback that the people closest to us see. It's creating an environment where you have friends that you can look at and say, come on, tell me what you see. Tell me what you see. Come on. Tell me what you see. I'm open to it. Now, you have to be very selective with this. Do not start a Facebook blog for this purpose. Right? And you have to be very careful who you tell your darkness to, depending on the darkness. For instance, if I were you, I wouldn't tell your wife that you have a lust problem. Don't make her carry that. She doesn't understand it. She'll be very hurt by it. I've been taking Krav Maga, which is, um, I've been doing personal training to stay in shape, and I've been doing Israeli special forces up close fighting training. It's called Krav Maga. And the week before I left Brisbane, they were teaching us how to defend knives. If you're going to admit to your wife you have a lust problem, I would suggest you take that course first. And you don't want to do that. But, but you ought to have four guy friends that you could talk to about it. You, you ought to be open. Listen, you shouldn't. It's a fool is open to everybody. But I can tell you this. If you don't have four people in your life who know all of your darkness, darkness is overtaking you. If you don't have four people in your life that know everything about you and still like you, darkness is overtaking you. If you're so guarded that there's not four people you can name who know everything there is to know about you, then darkness is overtaking you. I have four guys in my life, at least, that are all old enough to be my dad, and all of them know everything about me. And the reason was, is I was so guarded because I'm a bit, you know, when when you're up on stages all the time, you get all these personal questions and then you get more and more and more guarded. You would not believe the questions people ask me about my personal life. You could not believe it. And so you get more and more and more guarded. And what I realized was that was slowly starting to destroy me. And so I purposely and with full intention set out and I found found guys that are all old enough to be my dad that I could be open and honest and tell my darkness to. I could confess the sins I wanted to commit before I actually did them. And what I found was creating environments like that allows that sin to lose its hold of my life because I'm putting it into the light over and over and over and over again. It's a very powerful, powerful thing. Sometimes you can't see it without someone. Golf's a great example of this. If you're a golfer, you understand this. You cannot tell where your golf club is without someone else looking at your golf swing. You can't. That's why every golfer in the world thinks he looks like Tiger, but his ball's going everywhere. It takes someone else giving feedback. That's why millions and millions and millions of dollars of new golf clubs are bought every year because people are convinced it's not the golf swing, it's the golf club. I, cha- I, I, I used to have pings, and then I, I started hitting them bad, and, I, and it couldn't have been my swing because my swing was like Tiger. So I switched from ping golf clubs to Callaway golf clubs. And I hit them worse because Callaway golf clubs are less forgiving than ping golf clubs. And it was like I left a good woman for a crazy person who yelled at me and just was an awful person. And then I went back and called the other ones, please take me back. So I went to my garage and I talked to my ping golf clubs. And I said, please, would you have me back? And the ping golf club said, no, you've left me for another one. And I cannot have you back. And so I just mourned the loss of my ping golf clubs. And eventually I was very nice to them and they took me back, see. 
But when, you, when I saw my swing on video, I realized it wasn't the club at all. It was me. We all need these things in our life. All of us. But it has to come out of relationship. It is not your right to speak to someone else's life when you don't have a relationship with them. And by the way, everybody hates it when someone does it to you. How do you feel when two guys in the same uniform wakes you up at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning asking you to switch religions because they've got a new book written by Jesus? You, look, you don't even know me. Go away. Don't laugh too hard. We were guilty of that too. I don't know how the church survived the 70s. I don't. It's the pure grace of God. Our entire evangelism model was this. Hi, I'm Shane. And you don't know me, but I'm from the Bay City Outreach Center. And I just want you to know that unfortunately you're an abomination unto God. But the good news is, is I have a magic prayer that we made up. And if you pray this prayer, you could be like me instead of an abomination unto God. That was our whole evangelism model. And people bought it. Why? Because God is relentlessly pursuing his creation regardless of the flaws of his people. But slowly, we've got to be careful that our message never becomes be like us to be saved. It has to be live like him to have life. Those are two different things. The message of the church is always live like Jesus to have life, not become like us to be saved. You have to have relationship. We have to have that. Let, let's, let, let's, let's say it a couple different ways. The person walking in God's light and love can take correction and actually learns to love it. A person walking in God's light and love can actually take correction, but actually, it goes past that, they actually learn to love it. This, is, this way is difficult and why few find it. It's a broad road versus narrow way issue. The flip side of all this is gossip. The one thing that will destroy this environment in your life and in your church is if you can't keep a secret, if you tend to spread people's darknesses after they've shared something. Listen to this. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I want you to notice that gossip is in the same list as some pretty awful things, like hating God, murder. Gossip and slander is right there. Why? Because gossip and slander destroy the necessary environment of openness and honesty for people to become what God designed. They destroy it. It's like the environment necessary for you to realize the kingdom in your life cannot exist in the presence of gossip. Let's say it this way. Gossip makes us consumed with self-preservation. Once an environment is okay with people gossiping and slandering, then we have to be consumed with self-preservation because people are attacking us. And when we are consumed with self-preservation, that we can't own and get help with our own faults, we can't become people who establish God's kingdom. When we're so concerned with protecting ourselves from being exposed, it ruins the truth that if you have a close group of people that you're totally open and honest with, and you're open to correction, and they're committed to bringing light to your situation, it ruins it. Let's say it this way. 
that gossip is verbal pornography. It gives you a quick, easy hit with no commitment to engage in the suffering and darkness in order to bring light. When you engage in gossip, it is no different than you engaging in pornography. Pornography and gossip are the same psychological mechanism. They both give you a quick hit with no commitment. When you gossip, when you see someone engaging in behavior that ruins their life, and instead of talking to the only person who can fix it, you spread it around the internet, or you spread it to the girls at the coffee shop, or you you do whatever you do. When you turn your back on them and spread it over here, you are engaging in the darkness in a way that can't possibly fix the problem. You're getting the quick hit that comes from engaging the darkness with no commitment to actually fix the problem. The life Jesus assumes is when you see darkness, you will come alongside someone with no judgment, no perpetuity, with full commitment to them to help them solve the suffering. And gossip ruins that. It ruins it. When we neglect correction, we are on a slippery slope to destruction. You don't have to fall on purpose. You just have to live with no feedback and destruction will be a natural part of your life. What if there was an environment we could create where correction was a natural part of life because everything was so open? Once again, AA does this the best. What if we were constantly helping make each other better without thinking we were better? (laughs) What would happen if that happened? If we were constantly making each other better without thinking we were better? How could we begin to create that? That's one question I want to leave you with tonight. Is how can you start creating that environment in your own life? Maybe you're here and no one knows your darkness. I'm telling you, darkness is overcoming you if no one knows. You need to have three, four people who know everything about you and are there to bring light to that situation. You need to start personally. Then you can look at it corporately. There's so many things that we could do. Now, let me, um, let me quickly tell you the difference between a sermon and a declaration. A sermon tells you what you are, I mean, a declaration tells you what you already believe and you should say Amen. Jesus loves you. Amen. Good grief. Jesus loves you. Amen. Right? That's, a, that's a declaration. It's meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. A sermon is meant to be phrased in the form of a question. It's not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. It's meant to be thought about. So anytime anybody says, I disagreed with that sermon, well, it's not a very good sermon if you can disagree with it. A sermon is just meant to be thought about. Okay? A declaration is meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. Okay? So let me give you some thoughts to think about. All right? uh, and, and I want to challenge you to begin the process of living way. It'll be very important for your life. Here is the manifesto of a kingdom person, okay? Manifesto of a kingdom person. Here we go. One, I will talk things out openly and honestly with observations and not judgments. I will talk things out openly and honestly with observations and not judgments. If you believe that this would be the best thing for your life, say amen. Good grief. If you believe this would be the best thing for your life, say amen. Amen. And I want you, I want, this is going to take some work. I mean, this is narrow road stuff. Most people don't do this. Most people would rather yell and get Two, I will be brave enough to talk it through with the person involved. I will do that. I'll be brave enough to talk it through with the person involved. Three, I will be open to correction myself. Oh, my goodness. I will be open to correction myself. And all God's people said. Amen. Promise you your best life is found there. Four, I will operate in the disposition of Messiah Jesus. 
the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God. That's the disposition of Messiah. That when I talk, that when I talk things out, I will be humble and kind. That is the disposition of Messiah. Let's, let's keep going. I will give the benefit of doubt if they sin. There's always an if. There's always an if. Understand it. Get all the information first. And I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume your husband is evil in his heart. He might not have heard you. Yes. Chances are he didn't. Especially if you ask him, does the dress make your butt look big? He doesn't know what to say. He'll just keep clicking. Okay? Give him the benefit of the doubt. By the way, you like it when people give you the benefit of the doubt, correct? So if you like it when people give you the benefit of the doubt, does it stand to reason people will like it if you give them the benefit of the doubt? So give people the benefit of the doubt. I will keep it between me and them without triangulation. It doesn't help to bring somebody in if a problem can be solved between two people. Let, let's say it this way. I will have one conversation instead of five. It's always easier to have one conversation instead of five. The life Jesus is assuming assumes that with every problem, you can fix it with one conversation if both people are open. Maybe, maybe let's say it uh, this way. Oh, no. Let, let's, now let's ask some questions. Those are declarations. Here's the sermons. So these are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. You can't disagree with a question. These are meant to be processed. One, what is your initial response to correction? Is it defensiveness or openness? And likely, never one or the other all the time. Likely, it depends on the topic. Some people are open to correction in some areas and not so open in others. And so it likely depends. But the life Jesus assumes is that we're open to feedback from good-hearted, genuine people trying to bring light from darkness. Two, how open are you to the strength of feedback? How open are you to the strength of feedback? Let's, let's maybe ask this question. How many marriages in this room could benefit from a third party asking questions of it? The answer is most. Most. The question is, could yours? And if your marriage could benefit from it, why aren't you doing something about it? Do you think it's just going to magically get better? All right, how about this? Have you considered bringing in another person's perspective to your business? Maybe there's a question you haven't thought of. You know who, you know who this happened to? Campbell Soup. Campbell Soup's uh, profits declined eight straight years. And they couldn't figure it out. They kept making the soup better. Finally, they brought in an outsider who wasn't intimately connected to Campbell Soup. And they simply asked the question, why are you packaging it in a can? This generation uses microwaves and cans don't go in microwaves. What if you packaged it in microwavable safe bowls? What would happen then? <laughs> Good question. Number five, do you have a gossip problem? Do you tend to spread darkness with no commitment to fix it? Listen, if you're not committed to fix the problem, close your mouth. Do not make it worse. If anything, if you're not going to make it better, whatever you do, don't make it worse. Shut up. Can I get an amen? amen. Flip and heck. Hush your pie hole. Shut your cake hole. 
and either engage the problem with full commitment to bring light to it, or don't speak. You're making it worse, not better. How about this? When is the last time you said something about someone else without talking to them first? Don't answer out loud. Somebody back's like, oh, crap. (laughs) When is the last time you said something about someone else without talking to them first? This is what Jesus is talking about. When you enter into behavior like that, you're killing an environment to make everybody their best. Jesus is assuming a much better place. How about this? How did it work when you did that? What were you trying to accomplish? Here, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You had a reason, I'm sure, for talking evilly about someone else without speaking to them first. I'm sure you had good motives. What were you trying to accomplish? Did it work? If you're speaking with no motive, what is that? That's witchcraft. Number eight, can you ask God for the guts to go talk to them? To speak the truth to the only person that can fix it. Are you willing to at least ask God for the guts to act this way? I know this is a broad road and narrow way thing. I know most people can't. Are you willing to ask God to, by faith, give you the strength to do this? How about this? Can you give them the benefit of the doubt? Can you do that? How about this? Are you willing to become brave enough to become this kind of person? Oops. Are you willing to be brave enough to become this kind of person? Let me tell you something. Let me get a, I'm, I'm going to be open and honest with you. I'm going to share one of my darknesses. So I'll model this a little bit. I have a very high IQ and an almost photographic memory. I'm horrible with names, but if you have a name tag, I can take a photo of my brain of your face with your name tag and then never forget your name. It's... In some sense, that's a gift from God. In another sense, that's a curse because some things you want to forget, like seeing your granny naked. I can't get it out. See, it's there right now. I saw it. I just, unbelievable. There she is. Um, I graduated summa cum laude from university, and, and here, here was a problem I had. I thought I was smart. And I equated brains with wisdom. And I had, on three different occasions, that come right to the forefront of my brain. On three different occasions, I stand before you today and I confess to you that I was someone who despised discipline and therefore hated myself. On three different occasions... Men in my life who were men of God, full of wisdom, who were all old enough to be my dad, on three different occasions they told me, Shane, we don't feel right about the path you're taking here. On all three occasions, because they couldn't explain to me why, I ignored their advice. I said, why do you feel this way? We can't tell you. It's just inside. We just know. And all of them were telling me the same thing. But because all of them couldn't tell me why... I stood back and said, well, you guys don't know what's best for me. And I despised their correction. Therefore, I despised myself. And I can tell you that in all three instances, in all three instances, it nearly destroyed me. It nearly destroyed me. Look at my head. I was asked out a few months ago by a 58-year-old woman. I'm 37. 
Just to be clear, my mother's 59. And to make this clearer, she was, to be fair to her, she was a good-looking 58-year-old woman. And she wasn't weird. She wasn't one of these people who God told that was going to marry me or something. She actually thought I was in her age bracket. Which led me to all kinds of questions like, how old do I look? Look at my hair. You know what this is from? Despising correction. Three different times. Was I a bad person? No. Did I, did I enter into some horrible sin? No. I just made bad decisions that almost destroyed my life. Why? Because I despised correction. Was it because I was bad? No. I was 27. And there's no such thing as a smart 27-year-old. And I chose to ignore the guidance of the people in my life that God put there with wisdom and correction. And they were there for my blind spots. I couldn't see it. They were trying to help me see it. And I just ignored it. And look what it did. I'm being that open and honest with you to tell you this. I made a decision six years ago to never ignore their advice again. Even if I don't get it, I will blindly obey them because they do not abuse their power. They're my dads. They're my dads. I'm encouraging you to be open to correction and teaching and discipline. Don't ever hate it unless you want your head to look like this. Be open to teaching correction and discipline. But also, on the flip side, when you see darkness, be willing to engage it, not in a way that just talks about it, but in a way that comes alongside of it and commits to it and says, we are going to make this right together. That's what the kingdom of God is about. You want to be a kingdom person, we have to establish these things in our heart. Let's pray together. Lord, you're wonderful. We love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. Lord, we submit our hearts to you again today. Why don't you pray a prayer just right there underneath your breath? Why don't you just pray this prayer if you mean it? Lord, give me the courage to see things differently and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Lord, give me the courage to say things differently and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Lord, put people in my life that are these kind of people. Let me be this kind of person. May we create this environment here at Bay City Outreach Center. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be your guest. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, tomorrow, we're going to continue on with different thoughts, but along the same vein, okay? Totally different topic, along the same vein. Two different sessions at 3 at 5. I think I'm talking to the guys early in the morning. Um, we'll come in and eat breakfast. I'll have about four coffees. I'm not a morning person, but once I get going, I'll open my eyes very wide, and I'll be very ready to go. And then, and then Sunday, um, Sunday, we'll keep going about what it means to establish heaven right here in Hastings. So you guys come along. I promise you, you won't want to miss it. I get to come once a year, and it's always an honor. Grace and peace be to you. God bless. Man, wonderful. <clears throat> well, if you just took away that one message and applied it, your life would change. Been around a long time, seen exactly this principle at work. Uh, I can remember very early in my uh, ministry, one of the, our life would have gone completely off track Except it came to a point where I actually listened to the feedback and sought the feedback of a senior leader. It was completely contrary to what I thought. And I just recognized that if I honored what he carried, 
and just submitted to it, then I'd be safe. And so I changed what I was doing, and it turned out we were safe. If I'd followed it through, we'd have ended up in another city under a ministry that went off the rails and collapsed, and we'd have ended up away from God. It was just coming to a, a heart decision. And it wasn't about the person. There were so many holes in their life, I could easily have reacted to them. It was just recognizing then the kingdom, when you align with God, when you align with Him and His authority over your life, you then automatically look to align yourself with people who can speak into you. It's just part of understanding the kingdom. Yet it requires a decision to do it. And I can think of a number of decisions we've made, choices we've made, where it was the counsel and advice of someone else that helped me not make a terrible mistake. And I just encourage you, if you did nothing else this weekend, and I hope you'll come to the other meetings because this is going to build from one thing to another, take that tape, get the tape of it, download it, get by it, whatever, and go through it. And there was so much, he went fairly fast, and so in the end, it's hard to take it all in. But some of those points, just go right through them and say, wow, I want to put that in my life. I want to put that in my life. I need to put that in my life. Lord, who was talking to me and I never listened, and what a mess that turned out. Who came to me? tried to tell me something and I wouldn't listen and that really turned out a mess boy I paid a price for that the dilemma is so often we just walk on and on and on making the same mistake but don't make that mistake Get this this is a powerful message I want to thank you Shane for bringing that message today just very very powerful it can help change every aspect of your life if you apply let's listen and apply amen how many know God was talking to you tonight? Had your number tonight? That's fantastic.